You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Um, just while you're all finding your seats, uh, I'm reading from Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the king, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would, not, the king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these young, four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented, presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the, his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, thanks, Steph. That was a solid, uh, solid effort with all those names in Daniel chapter one. Oh, I reckon you pronounce them better than I will. So uh, that's great. Uh, my name's Aaron. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors at Darabin Prezi. Uh, shout out to the PA team. I don't know if you noticed that the song words today uh, were white on black rather than black on white. Perhaps you didn't notice that, but I did because I could actually see them, uh, which was great. And so uh, if you don't know me, I've got a vision impairment and that was tremendously helpful for me. I could sing out uh, and so that was great. 
Uh, it'd be wonderful if you have Daniel chapter 1 open. Uh, and there's an outline of my talk on the welcome card that Adam referenced earlier. If that's helpful for you, uh, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this afternoon. Uh, we pray that you would speak to us in particular, that you would uh, show us Jesus, your Son, more clearly and more vividly, uh, such that we would live lives that are faithful to you uh, as we live our lives in this world. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, as Adam's already mentioned at the start of the service, reading from Psalm 137, uh, the book of Daniel, or in the book of Daniel, the people of God are living their lives in exile. And now, I don't know about you, but exile is not a word that I use a whole lot these days. In fact, it's probably never been a word I've used very much. It's not a word we use. So what does it actually mean? Uh, let, me, let me give you some examples of where it might come up in kind of contemporary language. So I'm a real cricket fan, uh, and a few years ago, because of their role in what was known as Sandpaper Gate, uh, you know, the Australian cricket team caught tampering with the ball with some sandpaper, uh, Steve Smith, David Warner and Cameron Bancroft were cast into cricketing exile for 12 months. Right? That They were in the wilderness, not able to play for the team. That's one example. Uh, as has been mentioned, though, it's also election season. And sometimes we hear of a politician, don't we, who's banished into political exile, perhaps because of particular beliefs that they have or certain behaviour that they've engaged in. Uh, they're no longer able to engage in the world of politics. Uh, if you've been following the news, uh, of course, much more perhaps seriously and tragically, Millions of Ukrainians are being forced to flee their homeland and live their lives in exile. What does the word exile mean? It means to be living your life in a foreign land. To be living your life in a place where you don't quite belong, a place that, well, it's not really your home. And in the book of Daniel, God's people are living their lives in exile. They're living their lives in the land of Babylon, uh, rather than in the promised land of Israel that God had given his people. Uh, likewise, we as the people of God today are living our lives in exile. Uh, that's the way the New Testament describes us. Uh, because we're living our lives in a place in which we don't quite belong. We're not actually in the homeland that God is preparing for us. The new heavens and new earth that you can read about at the, at the very end of the Bible, for example. So how is it that we live our lives in exile? It can be really tricky. How do we remain faithful to God in this world that we don't quite belong in? How do we serve others well as we live our lives in exile? I think the message of Daniel chapter 1 is that the Lord has given us all we need to remain faithful to him and to serve others well as we live our lives in exile. That's my summary of Daniel chapter 1. You can you know, check if you think it's right from the passage. But the Lord has given us all we need to remain faithful to him and to serve others well as we live our lives in exile. So it'd be great if you have your Bibles open. Uh, we're going to look first at verses 1 and 2, uh, where we see that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Israel, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Oh, what does this tell us? It tells us right up front that Daniel's going to be a book about kings and kingdoms. We're going to see this all the way through. So take a look at verse 1. 
Uh, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. You can read a little bit more about Jehoiakim's reign over Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, uh, in the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings, chapter 23, verses 36 and 37. You can look that up later on. But in those verses, it tells us uh, that Jehoiakim, that because of Jehoiakim's evil deeds and because of the evil deeds of all his predecessors, that the kings of Judah had really gone off the rails, particularly Manasseh. You can read about him in 2 Kings chapter 21. So because of their evil deeds, they could no longer be in the presence of a God who is holy and pure. God had to get his people and his king out of the promised land. So in verse 2, we read that the Lord, uh, the Lord delivered or the Lord gave. Uh, the Lord gave both Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and his people into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. God sovereignly ordained that Nebuchadnezzar and his armies would besiege Jerusalem, would conquer Jerusalem, and would take his people to the land of Babylon. Right? Daniel's going to be a book all about kings and kingdoms. Just bear that in mind. It's also going to be a book about gods and worship. Notice in verse 2, uh, Daniel says there, The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into uh, the Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some interesting stuff, right? Some of the articles from the temple of God. Uh, these he carried off to the temple of his own God in Babylonia uh, and put them in the treasure house of his God. Oh, these temple articles, we don't know exactly what they are. You can read a bit more about it. I think it's in Jeremiah chapter 52. But they're just all the stuff that the Israel's priests used to use to help God's people to worship him whether it was a plate or a cup or a bowl or utensils of various kinds. Uh, they were generally made out of precious metals. Uh, so on one level, the Babylonians taking this stuff out of the temple is just about plundering the treasures of Israel. Uh, this was ancient warfare. Once you defeated people, you plundered them. But on a deeper level, it's actually about gods and worship. It's saying maybe... That because Nebuchadnezzar and his God have seemingly defeated Israel and their God, maybe the gods of Babylon are more powerful than the God of Israel. And maybe the gods of uh, Babylon are more worthy of worship. That's what it could seem like. It's possibly what it could seem like if you were one of God's people in Jerusalem, thinking, wait a second, what's going on? We thought our God was going to protect us. Here our city's been besieged and ruined. And yet, notice verse 2, the start of verse 2. It's the Lord who delivered King Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The Lord who gave. I'm sure if you were in Jerusalem at this time, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar would have seemed to be the most powerful. He would have been ruining everything. And yet... It's the hand of the Lord God of Israel who is actually in control of all things. You could perhaps imagine that the God of Israel as being the cosmic, the kind of cosmic puppet master, if you like. Maybe you don't like the analogy, but he's kind of pulling all the strings of history from behind the scenes. 
And at this moment, he's taken up Nebuchadnezzar for a season to use him for his plans and purposes in his world. Nebuchadnezzar seems powerful, but behind the scenes, it's the Lord God of Israel who's at work. It's the Lord who gave. So these opening two verses set the scene for a book that's going to be all about a clash between different kings and kingdoms and a clash between different gods and worship, right? The true worship of the true God of Israel is going to clash with the false worship of the false gods of Babylon, the idols of Babylon. And next, take a look at verses 3 to 7, right? The Babylonians have defeated the Israelites, carrying them off into the land of Babylon, and they pick some students to study at what I've called the University of Babylon. That's not what it's called, but, you know, this is the basic idea. I look in verses 3 and 4, we get a description of the students themselves. The king ordered Aspenaz, uh, chief of his officials, uh, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites uh, from the royal family and the nobility. Right? So that the Babylonians aren't interested in scraping the bottom of the barrel. Right? They're recruiting into their university the cream of the crop, those who are social elites, Nobility, members of the king's family. In verse uh, 4, we see that they're also physically elite. Notice that. Right? Without any physical defect. Uh, and handsome. Right? So that they're very physically strong and, and they're good looking, uh, which I guess is important, I'm not sure. Uh, and these young men, they're also intellectually elite. Well, you see there, they show aptitude for every kind of learning, they're well-informed, they're quick to understand. All in all, we're told here that they've just got elite credentials, right? They meet every qualification for serving in the king's palace. Now, why is it that the Babylonians select these young Israelite men to be trained? Two reasons, I reckon. The first is to control all the other exiles, they know that once these young men are trained, they can help them to govern over the masses of exiles that have come from Judah into Babylon. They can be like point people to keep them under control. But the second reason is to facilitate the assimilation of all the exiles. Even today, it's pretty commonly accepted that if you want to change a whole people group, a whole society, the best way to do it is to target the social and intellectual elites. That's the best way to do it. Uh, Tim Keller, for example, has this quote. Uh, he says, as the academy goes, which is you know, the university, right? So as the academy goes, so goes the city and so goes the culture. What he's saying? This is the trickle-down effect of cultural change. Right? It starts with the intellectual kind of currents and ideas in academia, in the university. It goes to major cities, it goes to regional centres, and then it changes the culture as a whole. But the Babylonians understood this. So their strategy is to target the social and intellectual elites of the people of Judah. And to get these young men in, to educate them, perhaps even indoctrinate them in all the ways of Babylon, so that in the end, the people of Judah would lose their distinctive identity as God's people and would just assimilate amongst the Babylonians. That's the strategy. Now, let me find my notes. I've been speaking without my notes for a while. 
Oh, sorry, in verses, uh, in, uh, verses 4 and 5, let's t- uh, take a look at the content of the training. Oh, no, I should, uh, I should, yeah, verses 4 and 5, yeah, well, very good. Uh, let, uh, what do we read there? Uh, the official uh, was to teach these young men the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Again, the Babylonians are pretty clever. I mean, evil and wicked, but clever. In that they understand that the best way to assimilate a people into their midst is to take away their language and literature. To get them to reject the language of their heart, their homeland, and embrace the Babylonian language. It's to get them to reject the stories that their culture was built upon and to embrace the stories of Babylon. Of course, as we meet here in the Aborigines Advancement League, it's worth remembering, pausing to remember, that this is the, well, it's really the tragic strategy that European settlers took with the Indigenous people of Australia. Isn't it? It's why if you speak to Indigenous people today, many, if not most of them, are filled with a deep grief because they feel like their distinctive identity has been ripped away from them. They don't know the language of their heart anymore. It's long since been forgotten for many of them. They don't know the stories, the literature, the narratives that their culture was built upon. It's a massive grief. That's the kind of grief that the people of God were contemplating as they arrived in Babylon. What would happen if we lost all the stories that our people have been built upon? What would happen if we lost the language that we've spoken In verse 5, you'll see there that the king assigned the students a uh, daily amount of food and wine uh, from the king's table. So it's like these uh, students from Judah are living in a residential college, right? They're on campus in the University of Babylon, uh, and it's not one of those kind of, you know, bottom-tier residential colleges. Uh, It's one like Adam Humphrey stayed in when he was at La Trobe, Glen College, uh, where there's a dining room. You know, and you get kind of you get to go to the dining room every day, and they lay out some food and, and drink for you to eat and drink. It's a catered college. And at the end of verse five, we see that after they've completed their three-year degree at the University of Babylon, uh, these young Israelites are to enter into the king's service. Right? That's the content of the training at the University of Babylon. In verses 6 and 7, we see the purpose. We've touched on this already. The purpose is to change their identity. But that's even clearer, isn't it, once Daniel and his friends have their names changed. It's very clear that the purpose is to change the very core of their identity, in particular, to move their deepest convictions, their deepest allegiances and commitments Oh, I'm sure most of us have known someone before who was really keen to separate themselves, separate their identity from their previous life, whether it was their previous uh, kind of maybe from their ethnic background, their religious identity, or maybe from their biological family, because their childhood was pretty rough. And often one of the ways they do that is by changing their name. I've known quite a number of Muslims who've chosen to become Christians, and this is really common. They change their name from one that was explicitly connected with Islam uh, to one that's a a little bit more of a Christian name, if that's such a thing. So that's what's going on here. 
Uh, only it's the Babylonians who are changing their names. They're not choosing to change their names themselves. So take Daniel's. Uh, these are the names that uh, Steph did a great job of you know, pronouncing. So Daniel's name is changed to Belteshazzar. You'll see that, which is probably actually a bit of a prayer to one of the Babylonian gods. They had a god named Bel. So this is a prayer to the Babylonian god. Uh, Hananiah's name is changed to Shadrach, uh, which actually means by the command of Aku, because the Babylonians had a whole bunch of gods. One of them was Aku, who was the god of the moon. Uh, and so uh, Hananiah's name's been changed like that. Uh, Mishal, whose name meant, uh, let me read this, uh, who is what God is, becomes Meshach, which again is to do with Aku, who is, who, uh, who is what Aku is. And Azariah becomes Abednego, which has nothing to do with the town I grew up in. That's Bendigo. But this is Abednego, uh, which is uh, the servant of the Babylonian god Nebo. As you see what's going on here, the Babylonians are changing their names because they want to change the very core of their identity and they want to change their allegiances, their commitments. And they want them to shift their allegiance from the king of Israel to the king of Babylon and from the god of Israel to the gods of Babylon. And that's the ultimate purpose of this training, of immersing the young Israelite people uh, into the literature and language of the Babylonians. Incidentally, this is why it's really important to be deeply connected with and immersed in a local church, or while you're at university in the Christian Union, as well as a local church, or if you're working in the city, City Bible Forum, as well as a local church. Why? Because it's in Christian community that you get immersed, not in the stories of our culture, but the story of Jesus. The good news of what God has done for us in Jesus, as, as you're deeply immersed in the story of Jesus and talk with other Christians about the implications of the story of Jesus for every area of your life, uh, that you'll actually be able to stand firm for Jesus and remain faithful to him even when you're put under pressure. Let's be honest, there are all sorts of stories in our culture. We maybe hear them at university, we hear them in the workplace, we hear them via our phones, social media, all the time. We're immersed in the stories of our culture. Uh, so to counteract, that, to, to counteract that to a degree, we need to immerse ourselves in Christian community uh, so that our identity, our worldview, how we see life, how we see our purpose in this world is shaped by the story of Jesus first and foremost. Well, the Babylonians are all about changing the kind of allegiances of Daniel and his friends, uh, but Daniel doesn't want a bar of that. He resolves to remain faithful to God. Uh, look in verse 8. Uh, but Daniel resolves not to defile himself uh, with the royal food and wine, uh, and he asks the chief official uh, for permission not to defile himself in this way. I notice that we're told that Daniel makes this resolution which probably means that other young Israelite men didn't make this a resolution. Which is interesting, isn't it? Oh, I don't know what they were thinking. The text doesn't tell us. But perhaps they're a bit like I am sometimes with other Christians. Gee, Daniel, what's the big deal? You know, loosen up a bit. Like, don't be, don't be so inflexible. Go with the flow of culture a little bit more. That's the sort of things I think about, you know, other Christians who I'm judging as being overly uptight. 
And sometimes they are being overly uptight, but sometimes, frankly, I'm being overly complacent. And that seems to be what's going on here. Right? Daniel knew that if he was to eat this food and drink from the king's table, he would be defiling himself. You see the repetition twice there in verse 8? The writer wants us to get this, to defile himself. He's saying Daniel knew that if he ate this food, he would be being unfaithful to his God and he would be making himself unfit to enter into the presence of God. He would be defiled. It's hard to know exactly why Daniel thought that. Again, the, the text doesn't tell us, does it? Maybe it's because the food was offered to Babylonian gods in the temple before it was put on the table. And maybe it's because um, the, the food provided wasn't kosher. They were serving up ham sandwiches and, and bacon and eggs for breakfast. You know, it just it didn't rock Daniel's world. Right? Or, or maybe, I think it's most likely because Daniel understood uh, that to eat this food was to say that his allegiances, his deepest commitments, actually had changed. It was to say that he was prepared to enter into a sort of formal covenant-type relationship with King Nebuchadnezzar and his gods. You can read through, uh, read through different passages later on. There's a whole bunch of passages in the Bible where if two parties enter into a formal covenant with one another, the, the climax of that covenant is eating a meal together. That's what we do with the Lord's Supper, with the bread and the juice. It's saying we're in covenant with Jesus, so we're going to sit down and share a meal with Jesus. And Daniel's saying, I'm not going to do that with King Nebuchadnezzar and his gods. My deepest allegiances, my covenant commitments, my deepest fellowship is with the King of Israel and his God. So Daniel resolves not to eat this food. He resolves to remain faithful to God. So I guess it's worth asking if there's any part of your life where you need to make this sort of resolution. I don't think this is the main point of this passage, but it's worth thinking about. Where is it that you need to draw a line in the sand if you're going to remain faithful to God? You might say, oh, don't be so you know, legalistic and talking about rules and lines in the sand. But you notice that Daniel's not overly legalistic, is he? He doesn't draw a line everywhere. Like he's happy to study at the University of Babylon. He's happy to learn their language and literature. He's happy to serve in the palace of their king. He's even happy to have his name changed. But there was a point where he said, if I'm going to be faithful to God, enough is enough. I'm not eating that food. I wonder what that point is for you. I'm not saying you have to draw lines all over the place and hide away in your room because the world's a big, bad and scary place and you should never know anyone, you know. like. But I am saying this world is not our home. It's not where we ultimately belong. And so we ought to expect that there will be places in our workplace, in our studies, in our families where we need to draw a line to be faithful to God. You might say, well, it's really hard to do that. I mean, to, to make those, especially if the line that you're drawing means that you're going radically countercultural against the culture of your family or your workplace or uh, the area of expertise that you're studying in. What gives us the strength to do that? Well, it's actually God's grace. 
Notice verses 9 to 16. I think in verses 9 to 16, where we see that the Lord gives Daniel and his friends grace to remain faithful to him. Now look at verse 9. And our God had caused the uh, official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. So again, where we see that it's God who's at work behind the scenes. It's the Lord who's sovereign and in control of all things. And even though the Israelites being taken off into exile is an expression of his judgment, it's not like he's not with his people or at work for their good. Here he is at work in the the heart and mind of an individual Babylonian official for the favour and good of his people. And that word favour is the word that's used throughout the Bible to describe God's loving kindness and grace towards his people, his covenant faithfulness towards his people. This Babylonian official, whether he knows it or not, is going to become a channel of God's grace towards Daniel and his friends. So in verse 10, where we see that that the official is very favourable towards Daniel, uh, but equally, uh, and maybe you don't blame him, uh, he's not keen on being executed. Uh, And so you see that there, uh, and, you know, uh, probably fair enough. Uh, He knows that Nebuchadnezzar, his boss, is ruthless, and if uh, Daniel and his friends don't eat this food on his watch and all of a sudden they're looking less healthy and a bit malnourished, uh, then it won't look good for him. He'll be executed. Uh, so in verses 12 and, uh, to 14, Daniel proposes this test. Right, please test your servants, he says, for 10 days. Right, some of you have had long exams before, uh, but this is a long one, 10 days. Uh, give us nothing uh, but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Uh, then uh, compare our appearance with that of the uh, young men uh, who have eaten the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So the official agreed to this and, and tested them for 10 days. Uh, at the end of the passage, Daniel, Daniel and his friends are going to have another test. No doubt they've had plenty of tests in their time at the University of Babylon. But this is the most important test, isn't it? The test of, are they going to be able to not defile themselves with the king's food? Are they going to be able to remain faithful to God? Verses 15 and 16, the results come in. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his friends looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate from the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now, as someone married to a vegetarian, I wasn't a fan of preaching on this passage. Uh, I'm happy with the choice food, uh, the meat. Uh, But anyway, uh, God loves a vegetarian, and I do too. Uh, But uh, that's not the point, really, is it? But uh, because of God's grace and favour, Daniel and his friends are able to remain faithful to God. Now, equally, you might say, yeah, but that's all very well. But so often people who are kind of obsessed with being faithful to God are of no good in this world. They withdraw into a holy huddle of God's people. They disengage from the world. They don't love and serve anyone. But that's not what we see in this chapter, is it? 
Right in verses 17 to 21, where we see that the Lord gives Daniel and his friends wisdom and understanding so that they can serve others well while they're living their lives in exile. Look in verse 17. To these young men, again we see, the Lord gave. The Lord gave them knowledge and understanding of all kinds Uh, of literature and learning, Uh, and Daniel could also understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And we'll see in Daniel, that's going to become very important, even from next week, Daniel's ability to understand dreams and visions. But when Daniel and his friends, you see, when they're faithful to God, it's not like God says, I'm going to kind of rip you out of the king's palace and protect you over here in this little holy enclave of my people so that you never engage with the wider world at all. God says, I'm going to give you all you need to keep engaging in the king's service and serving others well in the king's palace. So in verses 18 and 19, where we see that on the day of their kind of graduation from the University of Babylon, they're being presented before King Nebuchadnezzar, And what does Nebuchadnezzar find? He finds none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Notice that their identity hasn't been changed. Their names are still the same here, aren't they? Despite all the study they've done, despite the attempts of the Babylonians, their core identity has remained the same. Indeed, verse 20 says, uh, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king uh, questioned them, he found them ten times better than any of the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So on the one hand, Daniel chapter 1 teaches us that as we live our lives in exile in this world, this world that isn't our home, remaining faithful to God is absolutely primary. It's paramount. We shouldn't sacrifice that for anything, even at the risk of our life, like Daniel and his friends did in Daniel 1. But remaining faithful to God should rarely, if ever, mean disengaging from the world around us. We should use the opportunities we have to study and to train and to develop our skills and gifts to serve others well in the world around us. So two implications of that. First, if you're here and you're a university student, you must never think You must never think that it doesn't matter if you go to class or work hard or finish your assignments or become the best OT or speechy or, you know, arts student. I was an arts student, so I'm not picking on you. Right, but you must never think that that doesn't matter. It does matter. You should study hard, you should train well, so that one day when you graduate, you can serve others well in your chosen area. Uh, On the other side, if you're at work in the workplace, uh, you should know that the work that you do is valuable in God's eyes. There's something wonderful for me about serving God full-time in vocational gospel ministry. I I wouldn't want to do anything else. Uh, But notice that Daniel is training to serve in the Babylonian government and the God of Israel thinks that's important. He shows him favour and he blesses him in his work. Now, sure, throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel's going to have opportunities to speak the word of God, to stand firm for God, but he does that working in the Babylonian government. 
I said, let me encourage you. Whatever work that you're doing, as long as it's not, you know, clearly forbidden by Scripture, uh, God sees it as being valuable and important uh, and you should invest in it and do a good job of serving others well in your workplace. So that's Daniel chapter 1. Uh, the big idea of Daniel chapter 1, I think, is the Lord gave. And it's repeated throughout the chapter. Uh, sometimes we read Old Testament stories like this. I read them when I was a kid in Sunday school. And you can kind of think that the, the chapter is all about Daniel and the application is God wants me to be like Daniel. Uh, but actually, the chapter's all about God. It's all about how God has given us all we need to remain faithful to him and to serve others well while we live our lives in exile. That's what it's about. Because for us, the Lord hasn't just given us a bit of wisdom and understanding and training and skill. What has he given us? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's what he's given us. He's given us Christ, his son. And actually, if you think about Daniel chapter 1, it's Jesus who's like Daniel more so than us. Jesus is like the, the greater Daniel, the ultimate Daniel. Daniel, uh, yes, he, he had to leave his home in the promised land uh, to live a life of exile in Babylon. But Jesus had to leave his home in, leave his home in heaven to live a life in exile on earth. Daniel knew the grace and favour of his God, so he was able to remain faithful to God when he was confronted with this test with the food. But Jesus, God's son, knew the grace of God his father so powerfully and so deeply that he was able to remain faithful to his father in the face of every test and temptation, all the way to his death on the cross. Daniel is someone who displayed incredible wisdom and understanding But we've heard in recent weeks in John's Gospel that everyone who heard Jesus teach knew that he spoke with a unique authority, even greater wisdom and understanding than Daniel. But it's Jesus who is the ultimate Daniel. Not us. In Jesus, in Christ, God's Son, he has given us all we need to remain faithful to him, to serve others well. Uh, well what, does that, what does that look like? How does what God has done for us in Jesus motivate us to remain faithful to him? Well, God gave Jesus, you know, for God to love the world that he gave his one and only son. He gave him, uh, as Pete said on church camp, he gave him as a substitute He gave his son Jesus to live the perfect life of faithfulness in exile, the life that none of us can really live. When Jesus was living his life on earth, outside his heavenly home, he never put a foot wrong. He lived a life of perfect faithfulness every step of the way. What does that mean? It means we can rest in the fact that while we live our lives here in exile, we don't have to be perfect By faith in Jesus, we are united with him, we're clothed in him, uh, and so that the God of heaven sees us as perfectly faithful in Christ, uh, despite all our unfaithfulness. 
That's wonderful news. God in Christ has given us the perfect faithful life to be clothed in. But God in Christ has also given us that the one who saw us in all our unfaithfulness and yet was willing to die the painful death that we deserve to die. It was painful enough for Jesus to leave the presence of his Father in heaven and become a human being. But the climax of the pain that Jesus was willing to bear for us was the exile he experienced on the cross. When he was, for the first time in all of eternity, exiled from the loving presence of his Father, because he bore every last bit of my unfaithfulness to God and your unfaithfulness to God, he was cast out of his Father's presence so that we who are unfaithful to God can be welcomed into his loving Father's presence. In the end, it's that great act of love and mercy performed by Jesus, the ultimate Daniel, It's that act that should move us to be faithful to God. It's that act of God the Father in giving Jesus his Son that should move us to be faithful to him, even as we live our lives in this world. Why? Because why wouldn't you want to be faithful to a God who sees all your mess, all your sin, all your unfaithfulness, and yet the Lord gave his one and only Son for you? That's the kind of God I'm going to stick with even when I'm under pressure. The Lord gave out of his great love his one and only son. In Christ, he's given us all we need to remain faithful to him and to serve others well as we live our lives in exile. Uh, Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the book of Daniel. Uh, We thank you uh, in particular for how it lifts our eyes to see you, uh, to see how generous and giving you are. Uh, to see that you have given us all we need uh, in Christ your Son, and to remain faithful to you and to serve others well as we live our lives in this world. Amen.